has been a while since we have revisited the lectionary um, outside of Ryan reintroducing us to it last week. And I was reflecting um, this week on how we've spent the last few months. Women and religion, the climate crisis, how our faith informs politics, and the cross and the lynching tree. We have covered an incredible amount of ground and the format of Zoom and discussion-based church has absolutely uncovered so much ground and uncovered so much wisdom uh, within our community. In this, I think my own soul has been yearning for some rest this week, whether emotional or physical. And wherever you may find yourself, I invite you into some more risks today. Risk to think and believe that God is always bigger, more expansive than we ever imagine her to be. Risk to believe that God is a process rather than a moment, a being, or an object. Risk to challenge ourselves yet another time to think more creatively about our stories that are part of a divine series, one that we will never fully be able to read let alone understand. And in this invitation, I invite you to pray with me now. Loving God, you first call us loved um, before we can convince you so or otherwise. In the storms of our own stories, the struggle of our faith, you are a constant guide always ultimately leading us back to some version of truth. I pray that you would join us in this text and in our conversation this week, that we may co-create an understanding of truth and peace that still somehow surpasses all understanding. Let us find your mysterious presence even here. Amen. So our passage comes to us from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it is if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, 
Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the 10 talents. For to all of those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Well, those are some good, fun words to uh, be preaching on. And funnily enough, I preached on this passage about two years ago when I was working at Urban Village Church in Chicago. And I read back through what I preached in relation to the passage. And let me tell you, I myself am surprised at how much work I've done in terms of my personal theology and how I intend on communicating my thoughts this time around. And that just goes to say that if you are in process, if you feel like you know something or are continuing to make new decisions on what you believe or how you express it, you're very much not alone. And as always, these thoughts are an invitation to the conversation where we can co-create a theological reflection and allow the conversation to go back with us in each different and individual ways. And as is typical at Mission Hills, um, I don't want to address this passage the same way you've probably heard it before. Not only does it come around in the lectionary every three years, but it's often woven into a quote-unquote stewardship series about this time of year. So just as this passage discusses risks, um, some obvious and some more hidden, I will take a few risks today in how I address the text in front of us and hopefully challenge and deepen our thinking on what we think we believe. So let me um, start by saying that the number of ways this passage has been misused to instill fear, keep people in line, or get people to cough up more money <laughs> is unreal. Um, and I will do my best to address some of those things today. And I'm grateful that we have the discussion on Sunday to use the collective wisdom to explore these things more in depth. And we've seen many changes in spending in the midst of a pandemic and especially as we approach holiday season. And I say all these things to get us started in thinking about what the object of money is 
what it does, and what it reinforces. We vote nearly every single day with the things you choose to spend money on. We keep certain businesses and practices alive by buying from them, for better or for worse. So in this parable, we have three servants. All of them are left with different amounts. The master goes away, comes back later, expecting to have made profit, and one defies him. The last servant receives some pretty harsh words from the master for not engaging in the system and stewarding the talent well, and we end on a harsher note. Usually the master is assumed to be God, the servants are assumed to be us, talents are made to be either our money or our physical, emotional talents, and this sermon would be all about stewardship. Which, I have a whole other sermon about stewardship. I do think that using money ethically and engaging our gifts are both important. I just don't necessarily agree with the fact that that's what is happening here. This parable is usually preached in the vein of praise the way capitalism relates to our practice of faith. Take what God gives you and make more of it. Take God's blessings and turn them into more blessings for you and for others, and you'll be blessed in return. And this has been, for many, an unsettling story. It seems to promote ruthless business practices, usury, the cynical view that the rich will only get richer while the poor become destitute, and if we do assume, as does the traditional reading, that the master is a figure for God, that's quite a picture. An absentee Lord who cares only about profit maximization and little regard for the people that he has put in charge. And just for context, right, there are pieces that are within the text, there are pieces about the text that all inform us of the meaning that we make of it. Unlike um, other kingdom parables that begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like, we would read this more to be an accurate reflection of what the world they and we continue to live in. Without that, the kingdom of heaven is like, we don't necessarily have to take it as Jesus describing something that we are ascribing ourselves towards. And as we look to find ourselves in the middle of it all, um, this understanding of the parable means that Jesus is railing against the ways of the world around us and of our misuse and reliance on money. And if the master in the story isn't Jesus, Lord, he's just a man, and kind of a crappy one at that. That changes everything once we are allowed to consider the man or the master in this way. The word for master used here is kyrios, uh, 
which is a word used to refer to Jesus throughout the Gospels. However, it can also simply mean Lord, as in like a landlord. And so the slaves who please him aren't necessarily to be commended in the way that they are in a traditional reading. They're to be, their role is to be questioned and they are to be pitied. Um, yes, they take his money and make more of it, but it is by unfair, unfaithful means. And those who would be existing in this system and listening in Jesus's day, belonging to classes of people who are being exploited, would have known that. As for the talents that we're talking about, a talent was worth about 15 years of salary. Now multiply that out by how much each person was given. If we look at what it would have taken for the first two servants to double their money, for some of you who know something about money, you've maybe heard of the rule of 72. I know very little about money outside of how to spend it, so this was new knowledge for me the first time that I preached this sermon. But basically, the way that it works, whatever the interest rate is, say 5%, however many times it can go into the number 72 is how many years it would take to double your money. With 5%, it would take 14 and a half years to double their money, no matter what the starting point was. We're not told exactly how long the master is away, just that he didn't give any instruction. However, statistics show with the risk involved in investing, one out of four or five, some even say 10, make it. The rest lose everything. However, both of the first two servants do make double and are well received by their master. But how and why? The Bible generally condemns a system of usury or earning with like a wild amount of interest and did not allow Jews to charge usury to other Jews. Additionally, the concept of reaping where he had not sown and gathering where he had not spread seed indicates that the rich man, the master, was using immoral methods or extortion for gathering his riches. Basically, the last servant then provides a call out. He's a whistleblower, if you will. He names that he sees through whatever system, whatever game the landlord is playing at, in his absence of getting others to do the work for him. The third slave now begins to speak truth to power. I knew you were a harsh man. The Greek um, uses scleros, a word associated with Pharaoh's disease of hard-heartedness. So you get a little bit of that context there. You reap where you did not sow and you gather where you did not scatter seed basically unmasks the fact that the master's wealth is derived entirely off the backs of others. He profits from the labor of those who work his land. He profits from the exploitation that the servants are probably using in order to 
make this kind of money in whatever time was limited to them and unwilling to participate in this, the third slave took the money out of circulation where it could no longer be used to dispossess another family farmer. Bruce Molina in the New Testament world, insights from cultural anthropology has shown that in this traditional society, the idea was stability, not necessarily self-advancement. Anyone trying to accumulate a ridiculous amount of wealth would completely throw off the equilibrium of society and was understood to be dishonorable. Now, in an honor-shame society like Bob reminds us that they were, this is incredibly important. Greed was widely believed to characterize the rich who extorted and defrauded other members of the community, whether through the trading and tax collecting, lending money at a horrible interest rate, whatever it was. Um, and it was responsible for the destructive cycle of indebtedness and poverty and was profiting off of this system. And these things would have been picked up on by the listeners who belonged to the lower classes. I mean, Jesus critiques the idea of the rich man at many other turns in the Gospels, whether it's saying that the rich man would have to sell all of his belongings in order to make it to heaven, or telling people to sell all their stuff, give away the profit, and only keep the treasure of heaven, whether in the object of the pearl or other images we receive from the Bible. So to take the parable that we're talking about today, as we have in the past, I don't think it necessarily does justice to Jesus's main plot. For us to see the, the passage in the, um, the parable as an invitation into stewardship and expanding the gifts of someone else's um, over and over again, it doesn't seem to match. And our own society now doesn't match either. We know this, that's why we've been working through so many angles of the understanding and action towards justice. Here, it is a process of economic exploitation and wealth accumulation that is still all too characteristic of our own global economy. And in the parable, the slaves do this highly profitable, dirty work so well. We, of course, have this historical context and have been interpreting the parable through capitalist lenses. Um, that would provide nothing but praise for these quote-unquote good stewards. In folks and commentators from the, especially like the 19th and 20th centuries have reveled in this parable's kind of invitation into investment, uh, Christian work ethic, etc., etc. And then in turn, throw the third slave aside who is unproductive and lazy in the image of what we're presented with. But if the manner of profiteering portrayed in the story 
would have been understood by the original audience as just unacceptable. Is it not possible that this third slave is actually the hero, the whistleblower, etc., etc.? And I mean, socially, the third servant, he takes the greatest risk of going against what was expected he do. Make the extra money through whatever means possible so the Jeff Bezos of the world continue to expand excess wealth while denying Amazon Flex drivers health care. Contextually, this passage is placed very closely to the passages leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And if we do take this to mean that timeline-wise, Jesus was close to being led to the cross, he himself was engaging in a refusal to play the game and go expected what what he go against what he was expected to do. This parable is often read as an entry into heavenly bliss. But at the level of the parable, it serves not only as a promotion for the servants who are um, in, in the good graces of the master. It says, I'll put you in charge of many things. We have to remind ourselves that these servants, these handlers of the talents, are still trapped in economic slavery. Just because you're promoted in that world of economic pyramid doesn't mean that you're free. So all the things that Jesus presents um, in this parable, I mean, some of it is kind of brilliant if you think about it. Jesus presupposes that those who do not wish to see or hear the truth, you will not hear nor see it. Jesus crafts his words so carefully that if you are a greedy Pharisee, you don't see the sneaky, radical nature of his words that would have been apparent to the working class who can see through the facade. Similarly, many, many pastors have praised capitalism and the very manipulative behavior, but hopefully some truth can be found in flipping the script or the table and turning its meaning upside down. If you treasure the accumulation of wealth and don't redistribute it, then your heart is focused on selfishness. Capitalism as we know it is self-centered and focuses on the accumulation of personal wealth for a small number of individuals at the expense of many. And if anything that I've learned over the past four years, when you confront a bully, there are going to be harsh words. This is kind of unavoidable. And because of the language that is used in the text and that it once again engages the idea of gnashing of teeth and all that does, it can quickly instill fear in those listening. But if we understand this parable in a new way, the threat of the bully falls more flatly on its face when later met with unwavering commitment to justice. When we stand from the lens of 
justice. We stand up for generosity in the face of greed. We choose to be faithful instead of fearful with our resources. We figure out what is enough in our own lives so we can help others have enough for themselves. Build a longer table, not a higher fence. I always think of one of the songs we sing here, um, Build My Life, and I know we sing it a lot, and if you're tired of it, I get it. But it does beg the question, what do we build our lives on? What values and practices are meaningful? How do we make meaning out of our monetary stewardship? And wherever you land in terms of finances and your relationship with the church or the world, my invitation to you is to think about it theologically if you haven't already. And if you have, do your practices line up with your beliefs? To think theologically means finding images, passages, or points in our beliefs around a certain topic or maybe moment in your life. For me, I think about images of Jesus' miracles making much out of little. Whatever little I can give to this church monetarily or through my talents to rely on kind of the traditional take of this passage. And I think of transform transformative values of living life out of an attitude of abundance rather than lack and take the opportunity to engage in the collective wisdom, the collective resource that we have here. When I think about spending money, I acknowledge that even money votes, and I have very slowly, and I'm still working on it, changing what my money votes for. Rather than big wealth and employee exploitation, I'm working on voting for small businesses when I can get the same thing for probably better quality. I'm learning to spend not just out of unthoughtful desire, but steady, intentional commitment. These things are indicators of my personal practice of faith, and it may look different for you. That is okay. There are certain limitations in our culture that make being able to move away from things like Amazon so incredibly difficult. And let's not forget that capitalism is strategically set up to benefit certain people, certain groups, more so than others. Examples like food deserts where there are no grocery stores with fresh food available for an unthinkable radius forces people in these areas to only be able to get food from large corporation, fast food, inherently causing everything from health issues to environmental issues, is just one arm of a system deficient in justice. And to think about all of these things, this is hard, holy work. To turn it back to kind of the theme this passage is usually associated with, in terms of stewardship at Mission Hills, here we make probably the least amount of emphasis on tithing than any other church I've worked for, which I'm good with and kind of perpendicular with my experience of shame around how much I was or wasn't giving. 
But I do think that managing finances intentionally and ethically are incredibly important practices to maintain. And for some, the spiritual practice of tithing is meaningful. I mean, it's allowed us as a church to give out grants in the midst of COVID, which I know for myself, when I was really struggling in transition, was life-saving. In our care for community, I hope that it's obvious that any money going into our community here is creating more opportunity for engagement in justice work. We have a tight enough community here that we can see the effects of giving of ourselves when we are able. And on the flip side, as always, we extend the invitation. If you have need, please ask. We want financial resources to be another way of walking alongside you in the journey that you're in. My hope for us is three things. Just as we have taken on other themes um, that were once avoided in church or held particular emotional implications for talking about, such as politics, um, that we would remove the barriers that prevent us from being honest about the reality of money in our lives and a capitalist system where the gaps get larger and larger. We would think about flipping the script and exploring, whether or not you think it to be accurate, how this version of the parable might influence our understanding of the gospel and of Jesus. And finally, we would think theologically about our practices Um, about how we engage in a capitalist society. In all of these things, uh, we continue to dive deeper into holding space for questioning our understanding of what we thought we knew. And in this, we can continue to grow together. Amen. Amen.